Lord, thank you for this morning again. We pray that you would bless uh, this time that we spend in your word. We thank you also for the generosity of those who give this morning. Thank you so much. Would you bless them in your name? Amen. Amen. You guys can come up and we'll, yeah, we'll receive the offering. Thank you. Those that can give. Thanks for the reminder. I usually need someone to wave the, wave the tray from the back to remind me of that. So thank you so much. You guys go ahead. Matthew 16. So we're started a new sermon series through this time of Lent, sort of, which leads up to Easter and then Easter itself, uh, those seasons, talking about discipleship through Matthew's gospel. Discipleship is, of course, about following Jesus, about obeying him, about growing in him, about trusting him, about being a student of Jesus. That's what a disciple is, a follower. And last week, Brian started us off with Matthew 23 and, and contrasted the way of the Pharisees with the way of Jesus. And the Pharisees were the religious elite of the day who had all sorts of rules and expectations that they would pile on people of this is what it means to live before God. And and Jesus says, actually, you're piling so much on these people, you're not actually pointing them to God. You're pointing them to something else. And uh, you're not actually coming alongside them in any way. Jesus often confronted the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. And so we talked about how following Jesus is a little bit different than just following a list of rules. And today, we pick up that theme again of discipleship. We're in chapter 16 in Matthew, right, right sort of in the middle of the book. And at this point, the disciples have been with Jesus for some time. So this is not kind of new to them. They've been traveling for a bit. And Jesus is starting to look ahead to the cross. He's looking ahead to what's coming uh, at the end of the road in Jerusalem, the approaching storm, you could say, and how he'll be leading the disciples right back to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and those that were sort of in charge at the day. And, of course, it would be the Jewish ruling council who would then go on to arrest and to interrogate and to torture and eventually hand Jesus over to Rome for public execution. Yet for now, before all of that, though it's looming, before all of that comes, Jesus goes the opposite way. So instead of going south to Jerusalem, he's going north to the tip of Israel's borders, right up at the top. And according to John Chrysostom, who was uh, an early uh, church father, uh, he said that Jesus took his disciples up to the border so they could speak their mind in a safe place. Sometimes you've got to get away from it all so you can kind of process what's happening in your life, right? Sometimes the, the solitude calls to you in the busyness of life, and you need to get away to a spot where you can kind of process what's going on. So Jesus takes the disciples up to the north, away from his opponents, away from the arguments, so they can answer this question, who do you say I am? And under that question is sort of a deeper question. The question is, what really is this all about, guys? What are we really doing at the end of the day? And notice how Jesus does this. It's not like he's testing them uh, just with sort of a rote memorization. It's not like uh, like a kid's geography test where they got to label countries and capitals, right? It's not like that. Nor does he expect them to recite a sort of theological formula, right? It's not 
da 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 and you know, you have sort of two lines of something that you're supposed to recite. But he asks them, he's asked them all along to watch him, to pay attention, in a sense to develop what we would call the critical thinking skills, not just the what they believe, but why they believe what they believe. And whereas the Pharisees, and we talked about this a little bit last week, the Pharisees so often looked at a person's outward behavior as the primary standard of a person's righteousness to determine whether they belonged or not, whether they were in or not, Jesus asks these ones to come and follow him, to watch him, to pay attention. And as we walk together, you will belong to me. The disciple, like I said, is a student after all. And Jesus is showing them in their walking, eating, camping life together something about who God is. And that's why when he gets to this question, it's, it's quite a loaded question. But he starts off not with, who do you think I am? But what are other people saying I am? Look at verse 13 again with me. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Son of Man is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. It's his favorite kind of self-designation because it pointed to sort of the true meaning of his ministry and his identity. And it points back to Daniel. And in Daniel, there's someone who is like a son of man. So it's someone who seems to be human and yet somehow seems to be divine. And this person is, is opening the way for Israel to come back into relationship with Yahweh, the son of man. Of course, it also just means, you know, like a person, son of man, you're a human. And so when Jesus is, is picking up that term to refer to himself, it's kind of packed with all of this hope and expectation of Israel, but also it's kind of just a, just a term. But it points to this deeper purpose in Jesus, that he's the son of man in that he is a humble servant. He's coming to forgive common people of their sins. He's the son of man who's also the suffering servant, that through his death and his resurrection, he's going to set people free and bring them into eternal life. And as the Son of Man, he's also the glorious King and Lord. He's going to establish God's kingdom again on earth. It's going to look different than just a political thing with Rome. It's going to look much bigger than that. In John's Gospel, we're in Matthew, but if we're over in John, there's this moment that points again to Son of Man. Jesus tells Philip and Nathaniel, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. They're wondering who Jesus is, and Jesus again points back to the Son of Man reference, but specifically to heaven opening and angels ascending and descending. And we go, what's that about? Why did Jesus pick up that image to refer to himself? Well, he's pointing back to Genesis. Back to Genesis 28, where Jacob, who is one of Israel's ancestors, saw heaven open and angels going up and down a sort of ladder, this idea of direct access to God. And by using this name, Son of Man, Jesus is saying, now you'll see that fulfilled in me. I'm the one who brings direct access to God. I'm the one through whom this relationship can be restored. I'm the one who will open the way back 
for humanity to enter again into the love of the Father. And I will be the one, too, who will be lifted up as the glorious king. And I won't be sitting on, on a throne in Israel. I'll be lifted up, but not in the way you expect. I'll be coronated, but not with a golden crown, with a crown of thorns. And I will be lifted up to reign, not from the throne, but from a tree. So Jesus said, well, what do people think I am? Are they picking up yet what this is all about? It's a good question. Well, the disciples say, Jesus, uh, there's a couple options on the table. Uh, some think you're John the Baptist, somehow. We know John the Baptist was killed, but, you know, news does not travel fast at this time. There's no Twitter. There's no, like, like, some people just think maybe you're John running around. There's no pictures, so, you know, how do you know if it's not John? You know, you don't know. Some think you're John the Baptist. Some think maybe you're Elijah or Jeremiah or some old prophet come back. Lots of people knew a great prophet would come to kind of point people back to God. Maybe that's who Jesus is. And then Jesus doesn't even bother addressing any of the options on the table. It's kind of funny. He just goes, well, who do you think people say I am? They give a few options, and he just goes, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Who do you say I am? Just kind of primes the pump with the question, but he doesn't really, he's not looking to kind of correct them. And this is the central question that I want to focus on this morning. He gets right to this. Who do you say I am? Not the others, but you. You who've been with me for years now. What is your response to me? Because at its heart, being a disciple is about each one of us having to respond to this question. Who do you say I am? Is he your Lord? Is he the living God? Or is he something else? And Peter says in verse 16, you're the Messiah or you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the one we've been waiting for. And I don't think Peter quite knows exactly what all of that means to say that. Because like I said, Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He's the one to come, but he's also much more than that. He's not just going to overthrow Rome, which is what they're still kind of thinking. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, they're still kind of waiting for some sort of political overthrow, right? Which is why Peter says, how many swords do we need, right? How are we, are we going to take out Pilate? Is that what we're doing? There's much more going on. This is not just a revolution for Israel as a state. This is about the kingdom of God as Yahweh himself comes to dwell with his people. But Jesus loves Peter's response. That Peter's starting to get this. And he says, yes, Peter, and on that confession of faith, that's what I build my church on. The church are the ones who confess that Jesus is Lord, that he's the one who's come to save us. And now we look to Jesus to understand what God's lordship and who God is and what God's kingship looks like. We don't fill that in with our own ideas of kingship. We have to look to God himself to define kingship and lordship for us. And he defines it by going to the cross. That's our foundation as a church. Worldwide and centuries deep, Jesus is our Lord. But what about us? We live in a, a really busy world. We feel like a very broken world. We can be easily immersed in our various screens and all of our activities and all of the media and all of the content out there. We live in a world that's yearning for transcendence and beauty 
a world that's longing for justice and things to be made right. And yet so much in our lives is marked by havoc and loss and pain and grief. What hope does the Bible give us in that kind of a place? What does God say in the middle of all of that? Only this, that the God who loves and created this world has not given up on it. That he arrived right in the middle of Israel as a people lost under foreign rule, a people longing for God to come to remind them that it was not the end of the story. And he came right into the yearning, fledgling faith of Peter, trying to sort it out. And that is the reminder that God himself has come down and still comes down right into the mess and loss of your life too. That the God who enters Israel and the God who commends Peter is the God who stands with you today, right in the mess of it all. And what does he say? He says, do you see who I am? Have you been watching? Have you been listening? Some call me Elijah. Elijah was the one to get people ready for God's return. John the Baptist already got you ready. That was John's job. He was the return of Elijah. But Jesus says, I'm the one who came after. Do I just give good advice? Am I just some add-on to your life? Or am I someone else? Have you been paying attention? Who do you say I am? And in the middle of Peter's own questioning in his life, you have to think, this is a guy that's pulled out of the family career, out of his fishing career. He's following a strange and unorthodox traveling rabbi, witnessing the ways that this man is teaching about God's life and love and then this is the guy that goes and touches lepers, and then instead of becoming unclean, somehow his cleanness goes into them. This is the guy that touches dead people, and instead of the uncleanness of death getting onto him, his life goes into them. This is the guy who touches the sinner, and instead of their guilt and brokenness getting passed onto him, his forgiveness and his salvation goes onto them. And Peter starts to see, no, you're more than just Elijah. The shape of an idea forms in his head. You are the Christ, the one we've been waiting for. And I want to suggest this morning that Jesus stands before each of us and asks the same question. Who do you say I am? You've been watching. We've been walking together perhaps for a long time now. You've known who I am. Sometimes you follow me close. Sometimes you follow me from far off. I've seen your failures and your brokenness, and I've seen your joys and your dreams. And lots of people have opinions about me. Some say I'm this. Some say I'm that. But who do you say I am? In this moment, in the mess of your own questions and hurting, in the strangeness of our world and its groanings, perhaps in the ugliness of death and loss and pain of sorrow, who will you say I am? Who will you declare me to be in your life? And we need to answer that question not just personally, but we also need to answer that question as a church. Who will we say he is? 
Who will we declare him to be at this point in the life and ministry of Dryden Full Gospel Church? At this point in our, our desire to love and care for our city as we gather each morning and then head out again, as I mentioned this morning, as we were praying back to our workplaces, back to school, back to our families and marriages, back to all the regularness of life, who do we say he is in those places? When you're out with your friends, who do you say I am? When you're frustrated with people, maybe frustrated with the church, who do you say I am? When you wrestle with your own sickness and your own sorrow, who will you say I am? When you struggle with addiction and sin and idolatry, who do you say I am? And when you face mental health challenges and anxiety, who do you say I am? In the good and in the bad, in the private and in the public, when it's easy and when it's difficult, who will you say I am? Well, he is God with us. He is Lord and King. He's the lion who is the lamb already slain for us. In the good and in the bad, when the church is thriving and when the church is hurting, when the family feels safe and secure and when the family's mourning a loss, in all those times, he is still Lord and King that we may declare with Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I came across this song. It's a song I've been aware of for some time in my life, and I, I really love these lyrics. And I wanted to read a portion of it this morning before we head to the table because it celebrates God's kingship in the difficult ordinariness of life. It's called Time by John Lucas, and it goes like this. He says, My heart has known the winters, and my feet have known the snow, but my eyes have seen the glory of a seed begin to grow. There is a time to uproot, but most days just hold on tight. There's a time for darkness, but dawn will always be the night. Sometimes death will come calling when you've been good and warned. Other times its cold hands will cradle dreams yet to be born. There's a time to dance on sorrow and a time to kiss her cheek. There's a time to mourn in silence while justice aches to hear you speak. I don't know the end or tomorrow's story, but I have found the one who gives me rest. I'll make my bed in his promises, for he holds true when nothing's left. There's a time when laughter will echo through your halls in peace. But war is known to change your locks and carry off the family keys. There's a time for healing and pain, a time for drought and a time for rain. There's a time for everything until we crown the risen king. So crown him in your mourning. Crown him in your laughter. Crown him when it all turns dark. Crown him when you bury. And crown him when you marry and crown him when your faith finds a spark. Crown him for he's faithful. Crown him for he's worthy. Crown him for he is good. Crown him for his promises cut through the blindness of children that have barely understood. The beauty that has come and the beauty yet to come and the beauty that is yours and that is mine 
that death produces life and that we are made alive by the king who paints beauty with time. Who do you say I am? Will we crown him when we bury? Crown him when we marry? Crown him in our grieving and crown him in our joy? Who do we say he is? That means choosing him as Lord in the goodness of life and in the difficulty of life. And so let's crown him today as we come to this table and celebrate what he's done for us. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you call us into new life and you call us into hope, that you call us to be disciples, which means to trust you and to follow you. Lord, sometimes that's really hard. Sometimes life is full of groaning and brokenness and the shadow of death. And Lord, in those moments, it's easy to feel afraid and lost, to feel that you're distant. But Lord, today we learn that you have come right into the middle of our brokenness. And you still call us to love and to follow you because you've been throughout death and, and out the other end again. Lord, we can trust that you hold us even in the brokenness that we experience in our lives and in our world. And so Jesus, today as we come to this table, may it be a, a declaration uh, that it's you who gives us life, Lord. That we love you and we want to follow you. That we declare you Lord and King.